0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 111 of The True Crime Couple. My name's Kay. And I'm John. So before we get into the episode, I just want to remind you all that we have our Scary Stories episode coming up in October. So that means if you have any paranormal or true crime related stories, please send them to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And if you are featured in our October episode, we will be giving out Amazon gift cards and if you sent them in because we have received some already know that I will be reading them shortly and then I'll get back to everybody
1: don't forget about me I read them too
0: well I read him the ones that I'm like oh my god that one was so terrifying and then I go read them too but I read them all together in one night to scare myself
1: it's pretty good (laughs)
0: And we also, at the end of this episode, are going to thank our new patreon supporters. We usually thank our patrons at the end of every show, but last episode, I feel like it was so disturbing. I got so distracted and we didn't. So we're going to thank all of our patrons at the end of this episode.
1: Our ways of making an amends.
0: Yes, I it, it was just the frog thing. like I'm still <laughs> so deeply disturbed about that. Yeah. Um, and some of you guys did comment about how disturbing that was. I apologize for for bringing that to the table, but I report the facts. <laughs> it's true. So, it's true. As disturbing as they are at times. So it, I completely drew a blank after all of that. So I'm so sorry. And we will name all of our Patreon supporters at the end of this episode. And if you want to join Patreon yourself, you can do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. You'll get two bonus episodes every month, as well as the 50 plus episodes that we already have up there. So happy listening if you're doing that. You ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. In February of 1999, a mother chose to take her daughter and their family friend to join the other 4 million people a year that visit Yosemite National Park. Once they left the park, their plan was to visit a college that was located about two hours east. This trip, the one that all the girls were looking forward to, would end up costing them their lives when they unknowingly crossed paths with a man who would become a serial killer, a man with a very interesting past.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found
0: in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 1999, Carol Sund, along with her daughter Juliana, and her friend, Silvana Peloso, checked into Cedar Lodge. The six building, 207 room hotel was a popular tourist attraction that most people stayed at when they went to explore Yosemite National Park as it was located just seven short miles away. Yosemite is about 1,200 square miles and is nestled between the Sierra National Forest and the Stanislaus National Forest. So needless to say, the landscape is breathtaking. And that's why Carol did not want to pass up the opportunity to show her daughter and her friend the park. Carol was a fourth-generation descendant of the Carringtons, a very wealthy and well-known Northern Californian family. She loved Yosemite and had visited the park as a child quite a bit, In high school, she had met and fell in love with a boy named Jens, whom she would later marry and have four children with, Juliana being the oldest. The couple even honeymooned at Yosemite, which is why Carol was so excited to show her daughter and her daughter's friend, their family friend, the park.
1: And that's really nice. I mean, you know, maybe go on a little hike, maybe have a little picnic. Things of that nature.
0: Yeah. If you honeymooned in Yosemite, it, it has to mean something really special to you. So it seems like one of those experiences where you want to share something with your children that you loved experiencing as a child.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like um, like we go to the winery kind of thing. Yes. Except we don't want to bring our kids to the no, winery. No, we won't. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's when they're adult older. an adult-only yeah. fun place. Oh, yeah. Maybe when they're an adult themselves, maybe. That can...
0: really speaks volumes that, like, that's the place that we wouldn't go (laughs) alcohol is involved sorry sorry
1: but you know what though i i will say this i do not like like i like outdoors don't get me wrong but i do not like national parks and all that stuff i'm just not a fan
0: well you're thinking of like missing 411 all the people that go missing in national parks like that stuff
1: that and also like We've covered even an episode where a kid got lost in the, in, in the National yes, Park. Yes,
0: baby Dior.
1: Right. So, like, people go missing there. People get murdered there. Uh, I'd rather stay away. Not to mention there's so much wildlife and so many acres there. A lot. I I would be afraid that if I was on a trail, a bear would come out or, or a mountain lion or something crazy. Is yeah.
0: that weird? Well, I think you were raised in the city, so that is your feelings yeah, about I, nature. I mean, I guess, I guess so. When there is a bear report of a bear like around our house, John freaks out.
1: Okay, you can't give all the secrets away. Yeah,
0: he That's, gets terrified. It's
1: embarrassing. I, I, I'm pretty scared actually. <laughs> I, I, I'm not even afraid to admit it. I am, I am scared of bears.
0: Once the police officer came to our door and was like, "Watch out! There's a bear, uh, roaming around." So then we saw him like kind of go into our backyard. The police officer. So I'm like, "Ooh, the bear must be back there." So I go to our sliding glass doors. And John flipped out, and he like pulled me away. He's like, "Stay away, stay away!" I'm like, "He's the bear's not gonna come through the glass door."
1: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess you're right in that scenario. Yes,
0: pure fear, but you know and what? what? You pure gotta, fear.
1: I think everyone would agree with me. There's only a, a very thin piece of glass between you and whatever's out there. If it did decide to come up to the glass, nothing would stop it from breaking it.
0: I think, um, like a brown bear, I would be more scared of, but it's like a black bear that.
1: Okay, it's still a bear. Yeah. But anyway.
0: <laughs> okay. K, Kay K is,
1: K is over here giving away all my secrets yeah, and sorry. what I'm afraid I'm of. I'm sorry. But that's okay.
0: We all support you and your fears. Okay. I have them too. So they're spending some time at Yosemite. And I want to take a second because I keep referring to Sylvana Peloso as a family friend. And I just want to take a second to explain the relationship between Sylvana and the Sund family because it's actually really interesting. When Carol was in high school, she was able to participate in the foreign exchange student program at her school. So she spent six months in Argentina. Her sponsor family had a daughter her age named Raquel. And the two became really close and pledged to remain so throughout their lives. And they did. Sylvana Peloso was the daughter of Raquel. So Sylvana and Juliana were very close in age. And they also developed a friendship just as their mothers had, like this long distance pen pal friendship. That's pretty cool. Really cool. So Sylvana had a very close relationship with the son's family, even though this was the first time that she had met them. The plan had been for Sylvana to come to the United States and stay with the sons from November of 1998 until March of 1999. So she was staying there for, she was supposed to stay there for five months, but she unfortunately would never return home to Argentina. Originally the three had visited the area because they were visiting the park. Then the plan was to go visit the University of the Pacific. And this was a college that Juliana was very eager to visit because she was interested in the cheering program there. And then they were going to go on to meet Jens and the rest of the son children. There were three other children at the San Francisco airport. And this was a trip that all of the um, the two girls and Carol were really excited to take as was evident by all of the pictures that they took while they were there, and they did take a lot of pictures. The following day, on the 15th, the plan was for them to spend the morning and afternoon hiking and enjoying the scenery. Carol and the girls ate dinner at a restaurant that was attached to the hotel. Many witnesses saw them there, and later the waitress would recall that the girls ordered cheeseburgers and fries. The next day, they would have to go to, they were gonna leave early. So on the 16th of February, the plan was to leave the hotel early, stop at the University of the Pacific and then drive further on to the San Francisco airport where they would return the rental car that they had purchased to make the drive out there. So that is why at 7.35 PM, they returned to the room to prepare for bed. Um, they were seen one other time because they did rent a room from, rent a room. Of course, they rented a room. They did rent a video from the front desk. So that okay. was the last time they were seen. The following morning, maid came to the room. Nobody answered when she knocked. So she entered and she was surprised to see that the room was empty. All of the luggage and things had been completely taken out. Damp towels were left on the bathroom floor, and their room key was left lying in plain sight. They were supposed to check out that day, but not until later on, so it struck her as odd. Also, people do usually um, not check out that way. Of course, they usually return their key to the front desk, so it, it seemed kind of strange, like they left in a hurry. Now, because this is such a large facility, the cleaning and renting of rooms alternates so that the maids had time to clean all the rooms because there was 207 of them. The maid really had only originally went to the room to check and see if they had needed any towels or toiletries, and she decided to take the key and bring it down to management and she said there's nothing left in the room. So obviously these people had left and this is the key that they left on the dresser.
1: Hmm. That's weird. So so was there so there was a key downstairs as well? At the desk. And then they left a the key up in the room, is what you're saying?
0: There well, that's an interesting thing that we're gonna get into a little bit later. I don't wanna get too into the the key situation.
1: Okay. Only because it made me think like when you go to a hotel they give you two keys to a room
0: yes that they usually do give you two keys
1: right and i'm always you know me i'm always like very attentive to detail and also like i know that when we go to a hotel i always make sure we have both keys in the, yes. little, in the little packet i so. don't trust
0: myself with the keys <laughs> um that is a really good thing to put a bookmark at because i am putting a bookmark at. the it. keys are very interesting okay so Carol and the girls were supposed to meet Jens at the airport in San Francisco. He was to bring along the three other son children who ranged in ages from 10 to 14. The son's family lived in Eureka. So they were going to drive from Eureka to San Francisco airport. And then Carol and the two girls were going to drive from obviously the University of the Pacific because that's where they were stopping to San Francisco airport. And from then, they were supposed to go to Arizona, where his sister lived. And then from there, they were going to take a trip to the Grand Canyon. So this was a very active time for the family. I feel like it's a lot of traveling involved.
1: I mean, it is a lot. You got to catch planes, have like a you know mini road trip just to get there. <laughs>
0: But a series of very unfortunate events would lead Jens to not report his wife, daughter, and their family friend missing because she did not arrive at the airport.
1: Oh, they never arrived.
0: Yeah, the three girls, three women never arrived at the airport. Um, Jens and his children's flight into san francisco international airport from eureka i'm sorry they didn't drive there they took a plane there so the plane into san francisco was late was delayed so he thought that either they had missed each other or that he had misunderstood what flights they were supposed to be taking
1: okay so the ones that were missing left from the university correct yes okay
0: well they never made it to the university we will later find out either
1: oh okay
0: so since the last time they were seen alive was at the cedar L- at the cedar lodge yeah okay but Jens of course doesn't know this i mean it's it's 1999 there's no um not everybody has cell phones not saying they weren't around but they weren't common thing so they he didn't know that they never made it to the university of the pacific he just thought I got things mixed up or we missed each other because we were late. Right. So Jens has stated that his wife was an obsessive planner. Um, She was also a confident and self-reliant woman. So he figured that it was a mix up. He waited a few hours for his wife, but I mean, the flight to Arizona was going to leave. So he assumed that carol and the girls were either already in phoenix or they would just meet them there so they boarded the flight to phoenix he assumed that he would just be meeting his wife at his sister's house but if jens would have just checked the car rental counter he would have been able to determine if carol had returned that car rental
1: yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I mean, I think that, I think that when you're so busy moving, you know, you know, cause you're traveling, sometimes things slip your mind, something, some things that are so simple slip your mind. Think about it. You're trying to catch a flight, you know, hand in car keys, you know, deal with all that. You're, everything's kind of happening at such a fast pace. Some people do just, they forget to do the most simple of things.
0: No, that's something I can totally understand. I mean, in retrospect, it's everything is always so clear, right? hindsight yeah. is 2020. But um, I do have to say that I agree with you in the confusion of it all. And he's probably thinking, as a dad of like three kids, like, oh, if I don't get on this flight, my wife will probably be mad at me. So let me just take it. You know, that was probably what he was thinking.
1: Right. And also like... Uh, we don't know much at least well I don't know enough about their relationship but at this current moment you know it seems like she's very like you know she likes to plan and have things organized which then tells me that he probably isn't organized and he probably doesn't plan kind of like how you and I are where you plan everything and I am not good with that so long for the ride yeah you just kind of just do as you're told kind of thing no nothing wrong with that it's just that that's what you like to do you know like you like to plan and I like to follow the rules. So <laughs> it works. So I'm, he's probably in the same boat. You know, like, yeah. like you said, he's the one with the kids. Just going to just get on the plane and go.
0: Yeah, well, because at that point, I mean, it's not like he could just drive home. They they would either be stranded at the airport or they'd have to take a flight back to Eureka. So it does make sense that he made the the choice to get on the flight to Arizona that they had planned. Yeah. Yeah. So when Jens and his three other children, all younger than 16-year-old Julie, got to Phoenix, he realized that his wife, daughter, and their friend were not there. Still, Jens was strangely unbothered by this fact. Again, he told his family that Carol was very self-sufficient and that she would make her way there shortly. I will say, though, that this I find to be a little strange because it's a departure from his original thought process that she was always super well organized so wouldn't it have been very unlike her to have missed a flight i feel like that should have been a red flag for him to at least try to make some phone calls at this point
1: so oh so you you want to put a red flag in it
0: well the red flags are up to you Oh no 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 we
1: could show we could show the red flags. (laughs) I'm just I'm just okay, so you're saying that you think it's weird that the husband isn't checking up on her at this point?
0: I think it's totally normal that he got on the flight to Phoenix, but once he got to Phoenix and that whole first day that he's there, his not only does his wife, daughter, and their friends not show up, they don't even receive a phone call. I think that's slightly alarming.
1: Okay, I, I will say that I think it is a little odd that the husband, after being there for what, like you just said, almost a day.
0: Yeah, that is,
1: um, the, that is enti- weird.
0: the entire day of February 16th.
1: Okay, so that is weird. I mean, because I think that once I would land, I would try to reach out to, to someone, you know, wh- someone in that party there. Right. Um, But the thing is, we have to look back and say, that really isn't the golden age of technology where not you know everyone has a cell phone in their pocket where you know people aren't checking their Facebook and Instagram status constantly every five seconds so I feel like it's a very different world than when we live in and it's only like 20 years 20 something years you know
0: no I completely agree with you but I think that in what he says about Carol being this super planner I think that if she would have missed that flight with her husband I think she would have at least called her sister-in-law to say hey can you just leave a message um, I'm gonna try and get on the next flight out of San Francisco. I, I think that that's what she would have done. She yeah. wouldn't just not have shown up for a few days.
1: No, I agree with you. Um, you know I guess I guess it's to be we will have to to be a, determined yeah, to be determined here. I think we'll have to dig a little uh, deeper but it is a little odd. I mean I mean I know it's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes in a different like era, but I would have to say that yeah like it is weird. Because I would want to know your whereabouts.
0: Yeah, I would hope so. Of course. <laughs> On the morning of February 17th, Jan still had not heard from his wife. And he had no clue where she was, where his daughter was, or her friend, their family friend from Argentina that he was legally responsible for was. So he played a round of golf. He
1: play- He's playing a round of golf now? <laughs> yeah. Okay,
0: but this could be a very gone girl situation where it's like it looks bad what the husband is doing, but there might be other stories or reasoning behind it that the media doesn't know. But I mean, it just looks bad on the surface. Agreed. So no one had heard from Carol and he's playing a round of golf. When he returned from playing, he voiced to his family that he was beginning to worry about this disappearance. So he figured he would make some calls of his own. First, he called Carol's parents, the Carringtons. They informed him that they had not heard from their daughter at all. And this is strange because she called them on a daily basis. So see, again, that shows me that Carol's somebody who makes a lot of phone calls. So I think that she would have called her sister-in-law. Next, he called the California Highway Patrol and asked if they had seen a report involving his wife or the rental car that she had loaned, a 1999 Grand Prix. They had not. So then he called the Cedar Lodge and explained um, that he didn't know where his wife and the girls were. The hotel did tell him that all of their things were gone, but they never really officially checked out. That's weird. He then called the sheriff's department and reported them all missing.
1: Okay. I mean, well that's I mean, that's a good job on his on his part. Yes. I mean, he is going through every thing you're supposed to do.
0: Right. Like he didn't just call the sheriff's department first because then I feel like they would have said, Oh, do X, Y, and Z. Like he made sure he did those things first.
1: Right, which is smart.
0: Yeah, I will say that once he does Get involved in this investigation. He like kind of springs into action here.
1: Yeah, I could say he's exhausted all, you know, avenues 100% at this point.
0: After he called the sheriff's department to report them missing, he left um, his children with his sister and then he boarded a plane headed for San Francisco. So then he could drive out to Yosemite and he is going to meet Carol's parents at the Mariposa County Sheriff's Department to speak to them about the disappearance. There they answered all of the questions that the detectives had for them. She had rented a 1999 Red Grand Prix. She had not checked out of the lodge. She was supposed to have been at the airport, but she had not been. Jens had not called, and those integral 48 hours when a person's missing had passed. Hmm. So that's it's it's a pretty big deal. I mean, but now that's really hard to speak on. So I'm just going to speak from the perspective of both the family and the investigators. I think that if um, Jens would have called right away and said, my wife, my daughter and a family friend are missing and they were staying at Yosemite, I think that the police would have responded and said, Well, sometimes when people stay at the national park, they take a side trip and the side trip ends up taking a day or two that they don't normally think it would, or maybe they decided to stay an extra day. Like I think the sheriff's county probably hears it all the time. Someone went to visit the park, they're missing, but it's really just like they decided to do more exploring. They probably get that all the time, so I can picture them giving him the runaround But then at the same time, we don't know what would have happened if you would have called earlier.
1: Right. And also, uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. But I'm pretty sure when you when it's about someone missing in a national park, that actually is a jurisdiction of the park rangers within the jurisdiction of the federal government.
0: It gets complicated. So it it
1: can get a little muddy. But
0: they didn't. Like, he didn't know if they went missing within the National Park at this point. They were at the Cedar Lodge, which is located seven miles away. So it is under the jurisdiction of the Mariposa County Sheriff's Department.
1: Okay. It's funny you actually answered my question. That was my next question. What um, the hotel, like, how far is it away from the park?
0: Seven miles away. Okay. So luckily for investigators, the hotel did have that irregular cleaning schedule that I was telling you about. The room that Carol and the girls had been staying in had not yet been cleaned. When the room was searched, nothing seemed out of place. It did not appear as if there had been a struggle. The towels were used and spread out on the floor as if they were just kind of like soaking up water from someone taking a shower. And the last time they all had been seen was when they rented a movie after they had dinner in the hotel restaurant. It was found out quite quickly that the rental car had not yet been returned. So an APB was put out for the car. Detectives knew that there was a strong possibility that they could have all gotten into a car accident. Driving conditions in February around Yosemite were bad, especially for those who did not know the area. There was a strong chance that they could have gotten into an accident and fell off of a cliff. It had happened before, an accident where a car falls deep into a ravine and they wouldn't be able to find the car or the human remains until the spring thaw. For three days the area surrounding the park were searched, but nothing had been found. On the second day of the search for the rental car at the bottom of the cliffs, an interesting lead had been found, but it was nowhere near where they had been looking. About 100 miles away, in Modesto, California, Carol's wallet had been found at the intersection of Tully and Brigsmore. Her ID and credit cards were still inside the wallet. It had been turned into local law enforcement by a good Samaritan. So this discovery had an interesting impact on the case. It widened the search for the women and brought in the possibility That maybe they had left the hotel early and were headed to um, the University of the Pacific, but they had gotten lost on the way. Now, in looking at the proximity and the direction of the hotel, the university, or even the San Francisco airport, it is not far outside the realm of possibility that they could have gotten lost and somehow ended up in Modesto. They could have ended up on the wrong side of town, met some unsavory characters. The area is known to be home to those involved in the drug trade and those people that have been newly paroled. Like it had um, a high parolee population, I guess you could say. Or there was a possibility that the wallet had just been dumped there. So, so many different things, so many different directions to take the investigation in. Either way, this search just got broadened by 100 miles. So because the scope of the case was broadening, and because Salvina Peloso was not an American citizen, the FBI got involved with the investigation. This is something that local law enforcement welcomed because they were severely short on resources, and now it was kind of like a mess of jurisdictions because of the modesto involvement the fbi was aggressive with this case as soon as it was given to them the first thing they wanted to do was question the next of kin so Jens. eliminating them as suspects would mean that they could aid in the investigation so of course it was done first jens was a suspect not only because he was carol's husband and julie's father but because his behavior in the 48 hours after his wife and daughter's disappearance took place was peculiar at the very least. He was described as detectives as being cold and far removed from the investigation. He wasn't emotional and they thought this was something that was strange because you would think because he did wait those 48 hours, which are understandable, but you would think he would be like feel a little guilt or be have some kind of emotionality about it. And he really didn't.
1: Right. But you know what? The flip side to that is... See, we we automatically assume that because he's showing no emotion, that he has something to hide. But the truth of the matter is, if he was to have the opposite of that and be more eager to reach out sooner, he would have been told, you have to wait 24 hours. There's nothing we could do. They're over the age of 18. Right. And it's like, okay, well, then what's, what's the right thing to do here? Like putting aside what's normal, let's say, like to look for your wife. But I'm just saying, if you were to go too early, they would tell you, you have to wait. And if you're too late, you're questioned and you you seem odd for waiting 48 hours. So there's really nothing that this person can do to help his cause here. Right. That's all I'm going to say.
0: No, it's true. It's true. It's just He has to be questioned. And I mean, they weren't really like hard pressed on thinking that he was involved in it because... I mean, he was with his children the whole time, but they just did need to eliminate him as a suspect because it's part of a normal investigation.
1: 100%. And you know what? Unfortunately, with things like this, a lot of the times it is the husband. (laughs) So it's
0: very true. You know,
1: you do have to rule him out.
0: So Jens was asked to take a polygraph test and he agreed. He was questioned in the interrogation room and asked questions for three hours, but he passed the test. So this allowed the FBI and local authorities to again turn the investigation outward. This case is truly unique in the fact that the areas that the investigators were searching were so different. You had the expansive and treacherous National Park, in which there are many different terrains. And then you had the Modesto area, more urban and filled with criminals. It was a lot to comb through, and looking for a needle in a haystack is definitely an understatement in this investigation. The next lead after following the wallet came from a long shot carol's wallet was found with all of her cards in it but investigators chose to check all of her bank accounts just in case someone had tried to gain access to the accounts after they had gone missing they had suspicious calls were made to carol's bank account two days after she had gone missing they were trying to inquire about the balances but were unsure of the answers to her security questions. When the calls were traced, it was found that they were made from payphones in the Modesto area. Although they were not going to find out who made the calls because they came from a payphone, they were confident that the person that had made the calls was from the Modesto area and not Yosemite. And for this reason, a command center for the FBI was set up in a hotel room in Modesto, Although they did have an operation that was taking place in the Cedar Lodge as well.
1: Okay. Well, it's good to have both places now because now you could have two different groups kind of investigate their separate investigations. Two separate leads. Yeah, that's yeah. cool.
0: Because it is 100 miles away from each other, which is the distance. Oh, yeah. That did not mean, however, that um, you know things weren't being fully investigated in Yosemite the FBI agents that were set up at the Cedar Lodge were working the case and what they wanted to do first was re-interview everyone that the Mariposa County Sheriff's Department had interviewed. Now, the reason they want to do this is because sometimes that FBI badge elicits more of a response than a sheriff's star. Um, It just makes people nervous, you know? And it also means that this disappearance these disappearances were serious it wasn't just a mother and two young girls who decided to go on an extra hike before leaving or telling anyone about it this meant they were seriously missing and the fbi was investigating it there's a lot of missing persons cases that happen in national parks and that's why sometimes like if the Sheriff's Department is questioning people about it. They don't take it too seriously. But now that the FBI is involved. They thought that would kind of rattle witnesses a little bit. Makes sense. And they were totally right about it. They found out that in their short stay at the hotel, Carol had requested that the locks be changed on their rooms. See, this is where the keys are going to come into play. Okay. Well, she kind of requested this. When Carol and the girls received their room assignment, they were only given one key. Carol wanted to have two keys so the girls could have a set as well. Like if she decided to leave the room for any reason, they could too. Okay. So like you said, she wanted two sets of keys. And that door for their room only had one set of key. So hotel management sent a man named Pepper Collins a maintenance guy to change the lock for them so they could be given two keys.
1: I feel like that's a lot of like work for one person renting out that room, right?
0: Yes, I feel like it is too. Um, it did they did say that Carol was very adamant about this taking place um, so they changed the locks. It really wasn't too big of a deal. they just had to like screw on a different doorknob with the connecting lock okay
1: so this is a physical like yeah it's
0: 1999 it's not like a card not like a key card
1: okay so this is like key actual keys yes because
0: i mean it's easier with a key card actually because all you have to do is program any card right um but yeah they had they changed the doorknob so that meant two things first of all one set of keys are missing because only one key was left within the hotel room right Two, it meant that this man, Pepper Collins, did have the key to that room.
1: Right. Well, I'm I'm sure any staff member would have that key now that he changed it.
0: And that's a good point, too. So everyone has, you have to have a master key to get into the rooms. Like any of the maids would have that key as well. So um, they were thinking more of the perspective of Collins saw that the three were alone. Versus him having access because everyone truly had access, right? So they do a background check, and his background is clear, and he had an alibi for the night, so he's cleared of any wrongdoing. But this just goes to show them that the in- original investigation, not necessarily to the fault of the sheriff's department but it was lacking and that um, they weren't able to get all of the information they needed. So they did have to re-interview every single person in order to not leave any stone unturned at Yosemite. It's
1: not a bad thing.
0: So they spoke with everyone who worked at the hotel and ran a background check on them all. The only employee that was flagged by their background check Was a man by the name of Billy Joe Strange. Now, Strange was a parolee that worked as a janitor at the restaurant, the same one that the girls had eaten at before they disappeared. They spoke with Strange and learned that he had not been working while the three victims had been staying at the hotel. But while looking into him, they figured out something interesting. His roommate, Darrell Stevens, had failed to register as a sex offender. So he was taken in and jailed for that offense and questioned by the agents regarding the disappearance of the three women. They didn't like him for the crime any more than his roommate. So eventually, and I say eventually because they really did kind of string these two along for a very long time and they kept re-questioning them about it. Eventually, they were um, checked off of the suspect list. All in all, 127 people were questioned in Yosemite regarding the disappearance Um, employees of the park and employees of the hotel. But no new leads had been found regarding those questionings. What they didn't know, though, was that they did already talk to someone who was involved the crimes really yes just about four weeks into the investigation and just after they wrapped up questioning employees and patrons of the cedar lodge a big break happened in the case a hiker had come across the remains of a charred vehicle it was located just off of highway 108 but it would have been impossible to see from the road Although it was badly burned, you could see that it had been a 1999 Grand Prix and the paint color had been red. When investigators went to look at it, they knew that it was Carol's rental car right away because the plates were still on the vehicle and they were intact. Whoever had brought it there to burn had to have backed it off of the road and it would have had to have driven over A barbed wire fence, which was damaged in the commission of doing so. So basically, like the barbed wire fence above the ravine was knocked down. So the car had gone over it. Okay. And the car was completely hidden from view down the ravine. So from the road, you would not have seen this.
1: So, you know, it was like a hidden area then.
0: 100%. So the car itself was searched. It took a while, but they were finally able to open the trunk. In it, they found the charred remains of two people. And this changed everything. The disappearance they were investigating just turned into a homicide. But they were still missing someone. Could that third person still be alive? Now, there was now, I mean, there was always a sense of urgency in this case, but It kind of got amplified after seeing this because finding two bodies and not the third could really mean that that third victim was taken.
1: Yeah. I mean, they want to at least, I mean, if you could try to save the one life out of the three at this point, I mean, you have to act fast.
0: Exactly. And the bodies were so badly burned. And the last thing they wanted to do was make a mistake here and identify the bodies incorrectly. So they took a lot of time identifying the bodies. Um, They had to do so with dental records. Obviously, um, Sylvana Peloso is from Argentina, so it did take some time for her dental records to be given to United States authorities. But once they were, they were able to determine that the two bodies in the car were that of Carol Sund and Sylvana Peloso. That's sad. And that meant that Juliana Sund was still missing.
1: I'm sorry. I can't remember.
0: That's the daughter. That is
1: the daughter. Okay. I was going to say I thought it was the daughter.
0: And Juliana Sund is 15 years old and Sylvana was 16. Wow. that's Carol was 42. So they searched the area surrounding the car thinking that maybe there will be evidence there. Maybe even Julie's body might be located somewhere around the area. Like maybe if she had tried to make a run for it and she could have been killed in a separate location if that was the case. So while searching the crime scene, investigators did not find the body of Juliana's sons, but they did find Carol's purse and a fanny pack that must have belonged to one of the two girls. Both bags had cameras inside them. And to the amazing luck of investigators, the film inside those cameras were intact.
1: No, that's rare. Very. Think about that. It survived the fire in that car.
0: Yeah, and the person that must have like done this must have not checked for the cameras.
1: No, well, it's kind of weird though because if you think about it, like from what we know with the um with the purses of of um, I'm guessing the mother here. Yeah, Um, when her purse was taken because they found the wallet with all the cards and the The
0: wallet was taken out of the purse
1: right so you would think if he was kind of scrummaging through their belongings he would have taken the film out or just or have taken the cameras to maybe like pawn them off at a different time to get some money so it's weird it like shows that like
0: or he just didn't think or they didn't think that like there was any value Or, or that it doesn't matter like doesn't matter if we don't take the cameras because there's no evidence that's incriminating on it. They they wouldn't think that.
1: Yeah, but you would think that if they went out of their way to take physical cash, let's say, out of a wallet or take it with them to maybe see if there was anything to take in the wallet, that you wouldn't take you know, the cameras and the video camera.
0: Well, I don't think the goal here was robbery. You know what I mean? That's true, too. So they were able to develop the film. And from what they could see... Carol and the girls had an amazing time traveling in Yosemite, visiting the park, and they had taken pictures everywhere. They even took pictures in their hotel room. And the last picture that was taken was taken at 10.34 p.m. on February 15th. So it showed the girls together smiling on their bed in their pajamas. So this gave investigators a window. They knew that the maid checked on the room really early the next morning. So something would have had to have happened to the three of them between those times. It gave them approximately an eight hour window. Because of the remote location where the car was found, it would have meant that the person who dumped the car was a local because no one would have known about that location. So this led them to believe that the whole Modesto thing could have been trying to throw them off.
1: Well, that makes sense because based on what we know and what you've talked about in the story, they've definitely talked to somebody already that, that is the one that did it. Exactly. So it, I'm kind of starting to piece a, a tiny bit of this together. It seems that based on the last people to hear from them and where they found the car, that that person has to be from the hotel. Yeah, either someone that's staying there or works there, uh, and would know that by taking them somehow in, with their car to that area, or going to that area, let's say, and meeting them there and t- and, and and doing and killing them and doing all the stuff with the car, that no one would look uh, think to look there.
0: Yeah, if it wasn't for a hiker, that car probably would have been there for a very long time.
1: Right, exactly, and then they would no one would be on this person's trail.
0: So now on the same day that it was reported on the news that the Grand Prix had been found and two bodies were found inside, a man was pulled over for a routine traffic stop in Modesto, and he was very nervous about something. Instead of cooperating with the officer, he ran. When the officer who had pulled him over chased him, the man started opening fire. He shot and wounded the officer. The man's name was Michael Larwick. Um, What happened with Larwick was that after he ran from the officer and opened fire and shot him, he was held up at his friend's house and police were able to find him because the man was a known associate of him. And he eventually did surrender to the Modesto Police Department. Could you imagine
1: just being associated with someone like that and then they just come to your house to hide out?
0: Well, After I think shooting a police, he was an unsavory character as well. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the man's name was Michael Larwick, and police notified the FBI of this because they found it to be suspicious that the man would run when no drugs were in his vehicle. Um, he had been arrested. He had, well, he had a long list of things he had been arrested for, but one of them had been drugs. So they were like, well, why would he run if he didn't have anything? any drugs on him. I mean, he did illegally have the weapon that he shot the officer with, but the officer would have never known he had that weapon if he didn't use it.
1: That's true. I guess people like that they're they're, heightened, they're just heightened to like police presence, you know? Yes, and
0: maybe he could have been high at the time. Yeah. Many factors. But they thought this was a little suspicious. So when he was questioned, the FBI really they stepped in Because they wanted to ask him some questions regarding the disappearance. They thought it was fishy that he was nervous on the day it was said that the Grand Prix was found. Okay. Like, did he run because he thought they were stopping him for something else?
1: That's a possibility. Guilty
0: people run. That's true. Now, the Grand Prix was not found in Yosemite. And that becomes important now. It was found in Stantilos National Park, in Stantilos County. And Michael Larwick, it was revealed during questioning, grew up only a few miles away from where the car had been dumped and set on fire. This goes to the theory that it must have been a local. A local that now lives in Modesto, where the wallet was found.
1: Okay. So now we're getting somewhere.
0: Yes. Larwick was also a convicted felon that was out of jail on parole. He had been jailed for assault, rape, and attempted manslaughter. And they received another hit. He lived with his half-brother, who, as you would imagine, also grew up miles from where the car had been found. He was also a parolee. Eugene Dykes, who was 32 years old, um, Larwick is 42, um, Dykes had served prison time because of statutory rape, forgery and false imprisonment Ooh, these men sound very good for
1: this (laughs)
0: yeah both brothers were held for parole violations as they were looked at as suspects in the disappearance of all three women and the murder of two when questioned they both denied any involvement in the disappearance or murders they were asked to take polygraph tests which they agreed to do Larwick's test was inconclusive and Dykes failed his miserably. After that, the brothers were apprehensive to talk to law enforcement again. Known associates of the two men were questioned and some said that they had seen the two with Carol's son's ID and jewelry, which was later identified as definitely belonging to her because Yen said that it was hers. Um, Some of the witnesses said that they had seeing the men place calls to see how much money were in the account. One woman was asked to forge a check that belonged to Carol Sund.
1: Okay, so there's a a possibility that they could have taken things off the victim.
0: Yes. So the FBI was beginning to think they had their men. But while the men were in jail, a letter was sent to the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office. It was a crudely drawn map of the Don Pedro Reservoir. There was a horizontal line that was drawn through the top part of the body of water and another slanted vertical line to the left of the page. The horizontal line was marked 120, and there was an X on the map just above the body of water. That is labeled Vista Point. The sheriff's officers knew where it was, it depicted the Don Pedro Reservoir, and the bridge that went across the reservoir, where the X was drawn was where the hills were that overlooked the body of water. But it wasn't necessarily the map that was so terrifying, but the sentence above it, we had fun with this one.
1: We had fun with this one? Yes. Yes. That is scary. And it's kind of like you're getting, like, imagine opening this up, and it's like a, a, a detailed, tr- like, murder treasure map. Yeah. Because I'm guessing they're they're saying that this is where the body is.
0: Yeah, this is where Juliana's son right. is located. And we had fun with this one, which goes to show that, um, you know, that was their worst fears were being confirmed. They had taken Juliana because they wanted to do something more with her. Right. Right. But now what's interesting is their two main suspects are in jail. But in the eyes of law enforcement, this didn't knock out Larwick and Dykes as suspects. They thought a few things could be happening here. Maybe there had been a third man involved that was trying to take the heat off of his accomplices by sending in this letter. Or they had simply paid an outside friend to do this. Or... It wasn't them at all. I mean, those are three very real possibilities here.
1: I mean, I think it's pretty bold to send in some sort of map as to where the body is. I don't think that, uh, you know, your average person, you know, if you gave them $100, you know, or whatever amount of money would, would just go out of their way to do this, you know, and send it to investigators.
0: Well, we're talking about two people here that are very heavily involved in drugs and the drug trade. And I'm sure they did know a few people that they sell drugs to that might be desperate enough to do that for a hundred dollars.
1: I mean, I guess you do have a point. I mean, I, the real thing here is you would have to actually follow that map and see if there truly is a body there.
0: Exactly. Either way, no matter which one of these scenarios is true, they had to go to the reservoir and they had to search the area, which they did. Um, they wanted to find out just how much their map maker knew. Cadaver dogs were brought in from Los Angeles. They started at the spot where an X was marked on the map. And immediately the dogs hit upon a scent. And that scent brought them right to the body of 16-year-old Juliana Sund. Although she had been exposed to the elements for months, it was clear that her throat had been slit deeply and savagely. The scene was horrific And brought a lot of new questions to the investigation. The map was strange. It seemed like the killers had gone through extreme lengths to conceal the crimes. Evident by the hiding and burning of the car and the other two bodies. And the same with the body of Juliana Sund. It was concealed. And most likely police would not have found the car if it wasn't for the hiker or the body of Juliana Sund if it wasn't for the map. So why is someone going through, or people, because it did say we, so they thought they were now working with multiples. Um, why would they go through the process of concealing things only to later reveal them?
1: What's, well, let me say this. What, uh, isn't the term, uh, how many murders does it take to become a serial killer? Three?
0: They say three. But I mean, this, It's it's a... It's hard because this was like three at once well but let's just, yeah let's three just say makes you become a serial killer
1: okay so let's just say it's really not a we situation it's really just a person just yeah. one okay and let's just say you know you go through this whole thing this elaborate plan you kill them you know you stage the car in a place where it can't be found you find the perfect spot to put the body where they won't find it the only thing that i could think of as to why you would kind of uproot. You know, at least where you buried the body of the of the final victim is because you kind of want the recognition. If you yeah. have two people in prison uh, or, or in jail, or you are investigating two people that have nothing to do with it, let's say, and you are watching the news or reading the paper, or you just live in that general area, you know, you went through all that work, and now s- someone else is taking credit for your handiwork. I see maybe what you're that's saying. what it is.
0: Like they don't want Larwick and Dykes to get the recognition for doing this when someone else did it. Correct. Okay.
1: So it has nothing to do with getting the heat off them. It really has to do with the guy, the person that did this. Let's say wants the credit.
0: Right. So, and that's under the assumption that Larwick and Dykes did not commit the crimes.
1: Correct. That's kind of where I, you know, I'm going with that.
0: Okay. So on Julie's body, tiny fibers were found at the crime scene that Tex believed may later be able to connect her with her killer. Weeks later, those fibers were connected to fibers found during the searches of Michael Larwick's Corvette and a pickup truck that was sometimes used by Eugene Dykes. So they thought that is going to connect the body with the men. At this point, both of the men are in jail and have been questioned with their lawyers several times. Larwick maintained his innocence throughout the all of the meetings however Dykes was saying that Larwick had committed the murders and that all he had done was help him conceal and get rid of evidence after the fact then once the fibers were confirmed to be the same that were in their cars and were on the body he confessed that he had helped his half-brother kidnap the women and murder them So Larwick and Dykes were charged with the kidnapping and murder of Carol Sund, Juliana Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. And things would have been on track for them to face a trial, if not for a fourth murder taking place.
1: So let me get this straight. They're taking the fall for something that they didn't do.
0: Dykes did confess, yes. Well, Larwick never did, but Dykes did.
1: Which, which is odd, don't you think, to, to to take the rap for something you didn't do?
0: I think that false confessions are very common, especially among men who are familiar with jail time, want um, to get some kind of a deal because that's what dykes would have gotten, and men who are just bored in jail. False confessions happen all the time. For many reasons. Yeah. And I think that there's more psychological reasons as to why Eugene Dykes made this false confession, along with the fact that he was going to be given a deal by the FBI if he spoke out against Larwick.
1: It's very interesting to me. But I would have to, if I was the investigation team here, I would have to somehow try to make sure... That they're not just trying to, you know, make a deal. You know, that's why they're taking a rap for it. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: I totally know what you're saying. I think they did try to do their due diligence. um, But then at the same time, they also believe they had physical evidence because not only was he confessing, but they had the fibers that connected them.
1: I see what you're saying, though. I know it's
0: very loose evidence. Later, we find out that what had happened was the belongings. And the bodies were wrapped in a blanket, and that's where the fibers came from. So when the whole wallet thing... We'll get there. We'll get there. I don't oh, yeah, want to give it away. Don't ruin it.
1: <laughs> Sorry.
0: I always want to like explain it right away. I have to build the story. That's okay.
1: No, yes, you do. Okay.
0: Okay. On July 21st of the same year, four months after Larwick and Dykes had been charged with the crimes of the Yosemite Three, as they would be called... Joey Ruth Armstrong a 26-year-old naturalist who worked for the nonprofit educational foundation at Yosemite was packing up her jeep that afternoon she was preparing for a drive to go visit a friend in Sausalito which is just under a 4-hour drive away while she was loading up her car she received a phone call from one of her co-workers asking for some paperwork She told them that she would bring the paperwork over to him before she left for her trip. But that paperwork never got delivered, and Joey would never arrive at her friend's house. At around 3 a.m., Joey's friend began to get worried that she had not arrived. She made a call to Yosemite Park authorities to let them know that Joey had not arrived to see her, and she wanted to know if they could perform a wellness check on her. If not then than in the morning. Well, the rangers of the park did lead an investigation into Joey's potential disappearance. They knew her well. She shared a cabin with two other people, but they knew that those two other people had been gone for the weekend. When they got to her cabin, they first found her sunglasses broken on the front porch next to a spilled watering can. Inside the cabin was a mess, The furniture was thrown around the cabin and the bed had been turned over. It was evident that whoever had fought in the cabin had fought hard. This was a crime scene. They preserved the scene and called the sheriff's department. As the police investigated the scene, a media frenzy began. All the reporters were asking if this crime was connected to the murders that had taken place just five months before. No official comment was made by the investigators. Five hours after the discovery of the crime scene at the cabin, the body of Joey Armstrong had been found in a nearby creek. Her shirt had been pushed up, her pants unzipped, which led investigators to believe that there was a potential sexual assault. She was missing her head.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so this is, that is beyond brutal. Yes. But it also, to me, shows that, you know, this person, if this person has done everything, that it's getting worse. Escalating. It's 100% escalating. Yeah. I know it's hard to escalate. Okay, well, it's hard to top murder, right? But I feel like the only way to get, you know, the way I feel like it's getting worse is by him decapitating this person. There's like a it's difference
0: getting... between slitting someone's throat and decapitating right. someone. Yes.
1: Like that's it's like it's like he's butchering people. Yeah.
0: Well Joey's head was found twenty seven feet upstream and it had been savagely and crudely cut and ripped from her body.
1: Oh, that's horrible.
0: Yeah. Joey was brutalized by her murderer but she would also be his downfall. She fought like hell, and because of that, evidence was left behind. One of those pieces of very important evidence were tire tracks. These tire tracks were very unique because it appeared that the car that had left them had different tires on their front wheels than they did on their back. Really? Yes. If they potentially found what kind of vehicle this was, it'd be really easy to then break down, okay, well, which vehicle has two different sets of tires? Okay. So people who were around the cabin during the day were questioned by law enforcement. One man, a firefighter patrolling the area, remembered seeing a car parked by the cabin that was not Joey's Jeep. It was a 1979 International Scout. A blue one. that was a pretty unique car. So law enforcement searched all registered international scouts in the area. And they found one. A blue one. And it was registered to someone interesting. Someone who had been questioned by both the Sheriff's Department and the FBI about the disappearances of the three people from the Cedar Lodge five months prior when they were still only missing. That man's name was Carrie Stainer. This was going to be difficult. Now, I am so sure that right now you are saying to yourself, that name sounds really familiar. And that's because you love true crime. And we love you for that. The Stainers are famous in the world of true crime. Carrie's brother, Stephen Strainer had been abducted at seven years old while walking home from school by a man named Irvin Murphy. Murphy worked at a Yosemite National Park resort with a man named Kenneth Parnell. Parnell was a child molester, and he very easily persuaded Murphy to kidnap a child for him under the idea that he wanted to raise him into religion. He had told Murphy that he was a minister. Stephen was taken by Parnell and held in a cabin for thirteen days, where he was raped repeatedly by the man. Stephen was told that Parnell now had custody over him, because his parents had too many kids and could no longer afford him. They didn't want him anymore. He had an older brother, Carrie, who was eleven at the time, And he had three younger sisters. Parnell told Stephen that his name was now changed. His name was Dennis Parnell. And over the next several years, Stephen lived with Parnell. He was enrolled in various schools, and he had to endure endless sexual abuse. The tragedies that he had to endure were heartbreaking and they included being raped by other people, and Parnell conditioning him to never run away. But as Stephen got older, Parnell lost interest. So he plotted to kidnap another boy, and he enlisted Stephen's help in doing so. Stephen, not wanting another human being to go through what he had to, sabotaged all of these attempts. At this point, Stephen was still being abused by Parnell, but not as often as he had been. He did have freedoms. He could drink, smoke, do drugs. But his life was still a nightmare. Parnell was eventually able to kidnap another boy, a five-year-old named Timothy White. That was the catalyst to snap Stephen out of the trance that he had been living under for eight years. At 15, he escaped while carrying five-year-old Timothy in his arms. His plan was to have Timothy walk into a police station and he would run away. But a police officer saw and stopped the two boys first. Both children were reunited with their families the same day. March 1st, 1980. The Stainers were... In the media, for a very long time, after Stephen's abduction, um, Tilbert and Kay, his parents, and Carrie's parents, were very adamant that Stephen was still alive. They kept everything in his room. They bought presents for him every year. They knew that he was going to come home, and eight years later, he did. But they did say that, He didn't come back the same as you can imagine. You can't in a situation like that. Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping. Because of statutes of limitations and jurisdiction nonsense, he was not charged with any of the sexual assaults that took place against Stephen. He was sentenced to seven years And he only served five, less than the time that Stephen had to serve with him. And this did later prompt kidnapping laws to change. Stephen had a very hard time adjusting to life back at home with his family. He was very apprehensive to talk about the sexual assaults that took place. And when he did return to school at 15 years old, the kids at school bullied him for being sexually assaulted.
1: That's really unfortunate. Isn't it's that so sick? It is. But, you know, like, that's like, unfortunately, that's the, uh, you know, things have changed. We've come a yes. very long way. I guess I'll, I'll I'll just say that. We've come a very long way since then, not only with the way that things happen in school and how people are treated. The laws. The laws yeah. also cuz i mean how could you only serve 5 out of your 7 year sentence and even 7 years is nothing, nothing uh to you know you should have been there in there forever what you did to this poor child and others i'm sure but
0: yeah i um you know but even even now even if this were to be happen and like that stigma is still there when it comes to sexual assault of boys of men and it's not something that people like to talk about um there still would be like an apprehension i mean S- steven stainer was a celebrity there was books written about this movies written about this um when he was found they asked him what his name was and he said that his name was he thinks his name was steven like he he forgot what his name was yeah because it's almost
1: like a form of brainwashing right
0: um he he knew his last name but he didn't know how to spell it he'd spelled it wrong it's it was just terrible and life was very difficult for him but steven stainer at 19 years old got married and had two children he worked with child abduction groups and gave interviews about the dangers of kidnapping and strangers but tragically on September 16th 1989 he got into a motorcycle accident on the way home from work and he sustained a fatal head wound and died on impact so he was really at that point he'd only been free for nine years and and one of like a devastating fact about his funeral was that one of the pallbearers was timothy white
1: oh wow that's crazy
0: so needless to say the stainers were famous famous for being in the thoughts of the american people like when Stephen was taken the country mourned with them when Stephen was returned home the country rejoiced with them they soaked up this story of how brave this boy was to save another boy from suffering the same horrific fate as he had to endure for eight long years like Americans were very invested in the story of the stainers especially after the books after the movies and then he was tragically killed in an accident then the country mourned with the family all over again it was like in everyone's mind he would always be the seven-year-old victim
1: yeah that's really sad
0: it's terribly sad and now (laughs) you have carrie stainer who is being seen as a suspect in the sexual assault and decapitation of a woman
1: I find that so weird. You know, like, think about it. If you're, you, you know, you're in that family, you knew what happened to your brother, right? And now this is all coming to light. This is horrible. Now this whole family is being portrayed probably or about to be and in a very negative light. Yes. And it kind of overshadows all the tr- traumatic things that Stephen went through.
0: Right. These parents, I feel so bad for them. Yeah. So investigators found stainer smoking pot and sunbathing within yosemite national park he was taken in for questioning where he denied any involvement in what had happened to joey armstrong because they had no reason to hold him after hours of him sitting in silence they were forced to let him go but while he was in for questioning they took pictures of his tires once he left the tires were compared to the ones left at the crime scene. And interestingly enough, his tires were also mismatched. And they matched perfectly with the ones that were left in the dirt at Joey's cabin. So now they have physical evidence tying Carrie Stainer to the scene.
1: Yeah, it can't be a coincidence. There's too much there. No. There's two. not everyone has mis- mismatching tires,, yeah. and the treads perfectly match. I what are know. the
0: chances of someone else having a blue international scout that has different sets of tires on their car?:
1: Yeah, seriously. especially a 1979
0: one. Yeah <laughs> Early the next morning, when they knew he was supposed to be at work, they went to question him at the Cedar Lodge. Now, just an aside here. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Stainer is working at Yosemite. As you can recall, Yosemite was where the two men who abducted his brother, Parnell, a child predator, and Murphy or Irvin Murphy, where they met. So I think it's very interesting. Um, Stainer always says that like Yosemite called to him like he had a calling to go to Yosemite. And Parnell always said that he had liked being at Yosemite because that's where he watched a lot of the innocents, the children there. And Stainer is going to say the same thing.
1: That's strange. The
0: overlapping of those facts are, are very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, later on, Carrie Stainer is going to say that while his brother was abducted, and uh, this is very true. His parents were so involved within um, the abduction of his brother that they were, I don't want to say neglectful to their other children, but obviously their, their main concern is trying to find Stephen and get him back home. But they did send Carrie to live with a family member who um, he refers to as Uncle Jesse. And he said that during that time that he was molested by his uncle. Oh, wow. And, you know, we do know that this is true. Um, sometimes predators were often once victims themselves. But either way, Cary Stainer knew then what it's like to be a victim himself. And he also saw the repercussions of what victimization did to people through, if not himself, his brother and how it affects and impacts families. But he still went on to do what he did. So he is a, still a monster in every sense of the word. Oh, yeah. Despite what was done to him.
1: 100%.
0: If it was. So when they got to the lodge, they learned that Stainer had never showed up for work that day. A bee on the lookout was issued for the man and his international scout. But they would not have to search long because a call came in from a nudist colony just south of Sacramento. When the FBI arrived, the head of the colony came out to greet them. A man matching Stainer's description arrived about an hour ago. He was currently eating breakfast and the people at the nudist colony were very upset because the man refused to take his clothes off. So um, that's why they had called. All right, (laughs) strange. That's a strange detail.
1: uh, Hey, but I mean, if it works out for the police, if it helps, it
0: helps. Right. (laughs) So when law enforcement walked into the dining hall to arrest him, they expected him to take off but he didn't. He stood up slowly and he put his hands behind his head and was taken in easily. As he got into the FBI offices, he agreed to take a polygraph test. As they were preparing for the process, Sainer said that he wanted to talk alone with the FBI agent that had originally questioned him the day before. While alone in the office, he said, I feel like a bad person. I've done bad things that I'm ashamed of. I'm confused. I feel like there are days that there could be world peace, and other days I want to kill everyone in the world. When asked what he wanted to talk about, he said, I can give you closure on this. On Joey Armstrong, the agent asked? Yes, and more. The agent asked him if he meant the Sons and Peloso murder. The agent asked if he meant the Sons and Peloso murders, and he nodded his head yes again. Stainer said that since he was seven years old, which is before his brother's abduction, he fantasized about killing women, and when he was around eleven he was molested, and since then he had had a sexual dysfunction, his fantasies about killing and sex combined. He had a predilection for very young girls. He worked as a cartoonist and a handyman at the Cedar Lodge. On the night of the murders, Stainer had been planning to f- follow through with the plan that he'd been working on for a while. He was dating a woman that had two young daughters. That night, he was going to rape and kill them. Those three, a mother and young girls, were saved because an unexpected guest came over and was staying on their 10-acre property.
1: Oh my God, so lucky.
0: Yes. Stainer was furious about this. He was amped up from thinking that he was going to be able to make his fantasies a reality, and he still like had that adrenaline running, so he was on a mission to follow through with his plan however he could. That night. And unfortunately, when he went back to the Cedar Lodge and he saw Carol and her daughters eating dinner, he chose them.
1: It's actually scary how that kind of process like unfolds. unfolds. Oh, that's funny.
0: It's it's yeah. How like that day proceeded. So many things happened for. The tragedy that occurred to occur,
1: like well, I could say everything ha- had to go right, but you know, what I mean? everything went wrong for that to take place.
0: Yes. But I,
1: but you know, once again, a whole family was saved because of that, and that's kind of what sparked this to happen. It's ca- yeah. it's just nuts to me how that. Yeah. You know, we get from that to that.
0: The tragedy <laughs> of it all. Yeah. And the circumstances. Yeah. So he had to come up with a plan quickly, he said, because he worked at the hotel. He knew that no one was staying in the rooms around where Carol and the girls were staying. So he knocked on all the doors around them, said loudly that he was checking for leaks, went into the rooms for a few minutes and then left. He did the same thing on to the two rooms next to where they were staying and then he knocked on their door, room 509. He said he was checking for a leak and he needed to just check their bathroom quickly. At first, Carol's son told him no, but after he pressed the issue, she let him in. Once inside the room, he forced them into the bathroom at gunpoint. He strangled Carol first and carried her body to the trunk of her own car. Imagine that. Carol was probably terrified. From what everyone said, she was an amazing mother. Her whole life was dedicated to her children. She was selfless. She died not knowing what was going to happen to her daughter Juliana and her friend's daughter. She would never get to say goodbye to any of her four children. After he got back, Carol and Sylvana were taken out of the bathroom. They were his target. He molested and sexually tortured the girls for six hours. Six hours. But because no one was around them, no one could hear their screams. He forced them to perform acts on each other as well. But he became frustrated because he said they weren't cooperating with him the way he wanted them to. And because he could not maintain an erection. So he put Julie back in the bathroom and he kept Sylvana in the room. He strangled her and then placed her in the trunk next to Carol. He then took Julie from the bathroom and raped her in the hotel room. He then drove her to a secluded area of the reservoir where her body was found. He said that she cooperated with him. He said that she had no clue her mother and friend were dead. She just thought that he put them in a different room because that's what he told her. And she thought that if she listened, he would let them all go. He said that he carried her from the car to the hill that overlooked the reservoir. A romantic gesture, he said.
1: Um, That's anything but uh, romantic.
0: Yes. Yes. As the sun rose, he held her in front of him. He told her that he loved her, and then he slit her throat. Jeez. Yeah. He then kind of like rolled her body down the hill, and that's where she was located, um, closer to the reservoir area. He dumped the car down a ravine off of Highway 108 and then took a taxi back to where he lived. He went back later to torch the car and when he went back to the car he took Carol's wallet and drove out to Modesto where he dumped the wallet to throw police off which he did do because then it was later that uh, Larwick was able to pick up the wallet and it was from the fibers because the wallet was in the trunk with the bodies wrapped in the blankets Right. That's where the fibers came from and that's why the fibers were found on Larwick and Dykes because they were trying to somehow use these cards or cash these checks and use the jewelry that was dumped with the wallet.
1: So that makes sense though.
0: Yes. The chances of that as well.
1: This is insane. You know know what's odd? I've never heard about this.
0: Well, you know what happens a lot? Um, The tragedy of the Stainer family. I think within the true crime community, people, I mean, Jesus Christ, the story of Stephen Stainer is one of the most tragic stories out there. And I think it really pays homage to what his parents and he went through. People choose to um, talk about the the case of Stephen Stainer because he is a true victim in every sense of the word, and Carrie Steiner is a true monster in every sense of the word. So people tend to follow and discuss the case of Stephen, whereas the case of Carrie Stainer also needs to be talked about because there's four very real and um, very loving victims that need to be talked about, and their families need to have justice as well.
1: Right, well that's, and, and you are right about that I mean, you have to think, you always want I think in general, people want to look at that as the You know, the Steven story Because it's, I guess you can call it You know, in its own right, it's inspiring You know, that through everything that this kid went through Not only did he save another child's life But he was also able to kind of rebuild what was left of his And continue to like, have a family And, and at least live his life, even though it was cut short that's a story that is like, it goes from the bottom to the the worst of the worst to something of a normal life. And I yeah. think that's a story that everyone can get behind. This is a kid that disappeared. They didn't know he was going to come back. And there he is, you know, like, so it's a better, it's a better story.
0: It is a better story because it, it, it gives, <laughs> yeah. when, when kids go missing, it's always so tragic. You know, like we covered the Amanda Gay Key case, um, the tragedy is just so real of when a victim is found deceased. So when you get that hope of them coming back, but, but even in that sense of the word, like Steven Stainer, it wasn't, uh, anything to rejoice. I mean, he was haunted, haunted by what happened to him.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: So I, people don't really like talking about Carrie Stainer who becomes known as the Yosemite killer. Um, because it puts a stain on the family and nobody wants to put a stain on the family because of the tragedy they went through. And, you know, I just think that every story needs to be told in this community. That's true. All right. So the agents asked Carrie Stainer, why he drew the map and wrote what he did on top of it. If he went through so much effort to conceal his crime, he said that he thought the body of Julie would have been found faster. If he wrote the note, he said that he did love her, and that he didn't like that she was out exposed to the elements for so long he he didn't he hated the fact that her body was exposed and he wanted her to be found but he didn't want to be caught which is why he said we had fun with this one
1: another way of trying to throw them off
0: throw them off but also that's his his fantasy is that he was in love with her
1: right which, yeah. yeah, which is funny because Twisted. he would have never even, they would have never even been a target for him unless that happened with that family.
0: Well, maybe he was projecting how he felt about his girlfriend's children onto, onto, them. onto yes. them. That's which, what I think.
1: That makes more sense.
0: Which is, I mean, might be one of the reasons why, like, you know, and he became frustrated and that's why, I mean, murder was always what he wanted to do, but he was saying that he couldn't maintain his erection because... I guess, I don't know, hopefully because what he was doing was sick, but more because he felt like he didn't have the connection to the girls. Right. Okay. So no more talking about that. Um, <laughs> he said that he chose Joey because she was alone and because she looked so young. Although she was 26 years old, Joey Armstrong was very petite very small, and she did look a lot younger than she was. So he said that's why he chose her. He said ever since he did what he did to the Sons and Peloso, that his dark fantasies kept coming back um, stronger than they had been before the first murders that he committed. And he had gotten away with it, so he thought he could do it again. He saw Joey alone. And in a secluded area, he tried to start a conversation with her, but she was busy. So she kind of blew him off, but he had hung around long enough to see that no one was in the cabin that she shared with other people. They were alone. So when she started walking back in to get another bag to bring out to her Jeep, he followed her. And when she realized he was following her, she broke into a run. But so did he. And they made it on the porch at the same time. And then they got into the cabin and they fought hard. He was getting frantic because he hadn't anticipated this fight. He was able to get the gun that he had out and he forced her into his car. But at this point, he's kind of like all over the place, he's saying. He was trying to drive her to a more secluded location when she launched herself from the back seat through the passenger side window in the front. And in the car that he has, there is a considerable amount of room between the seats and the windows, but she's also very petite as well. So she was able to get herself out the window. And he was driving, so he couldn't necessarily stop her. So she hit the ground hard, but she quickly got up and started running. She ran into the woods because she thought she could evade him there. He stopped the car and he chased her. He was finally able to catch her um, right by the bank of a river. And it was then when he got hold of her that he slit her throat. But he didn't stop he decapitated her he gave no reason for doing so but it must have been the fact that he was enraged by her attempts to escape to fight his loss of control it all that's why the violence was so oh my god undeniable when it came to the the death of joey armstrong
1: yeah i mean he didn't anticipate a fight and that's it, like you said, it's all—it's that whole entire. And then he up. was
0: angry, and then he was frustrated, and he took it out on her, yeah. and um, he then molested her body and left. Insane. So it had not been Larwick and Dykes. They had only found the wallet in Modesto, like I said, and they knew that only one man was responsible for this crime. But it, it does go to show you that those lie detector tests are not always reliable.
1: You know, I want to add to that, though. In a way, they kind like they kind of are, because if we're looking at the two people that took them, they're model, they're model troublemakers. They get themselves into a lot of crap, most likely. Yes. And they're, in some form or another, they're offenders of, of a crime.
0: They're guilty of they're something. They're
1: guilty of... Right, exactly. They're guilty of something, so... Maybe they hit on something, but it had nothing to do with what they were looking for.
0: Yeah, what they were, what um, professionals who um, administered the test, they said that what might have happened was the fact that the two men are very into drugs. So they were being asked questions about various crimes that could have been committed. And they were thinking that maybe they had gotten nervous because when you're high, you don't necessarily remember everything that you do. So... That could be the reason why it was inconclusive with Larwick and failed with Dykes. Yeah. So it could have been many reasons. But after Stainer confessed, the FBI sat down with him and said, someone needs to prepare your family for this. I mean, how much tragedy could one family take? And this was very different news. Than what had happened with Steven. Because they know what it's like to be the victims of a crime. To have their child be the victim of a monster. But now what happens when you're the parent of that monster?
1: And I have to tell you, there's really no way for them to be prepared for that. Because I can't think of anyone, like a whole entire family, that had to deal with what they've had to deal with yeah they've been on both receive like they've been on the receiving end of it and and now and now this too like it's just crazy
0: i i cannot agree with you more when it comes to that because a lot of the families of these predators these murderers that that you know we talk about or exist in the true crime community they're like you know but they're really nice and, and but they can never conceptualize what it's like to be the family member of a victim but now the Sainers can. Yeah, they know the pain that the sons and the Peloso family are going through.
1: That's true. Very
0: unique situation.
1: I mean, it, between it, it, it the is families. True. Yeah.
0: In November of 2000, Carrie Stainer is tried for the murder of Joey Armstrong, and is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Two years later, in May of 2002. He is tried for various felonies and the murder of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. During the trial, his confession tape was played to the courtroom, the jury, and everyone watching. Sylvina's father had to be dragged out of the courtroom because he was cursing and screaming at Stainer when the confession tape was played. And he found out what happened to his daughter in excruciating detail. While the tape was played, Stainer himself put his fingers in his ears because he said he didn't want to hear what he had confessed to. During the trial, the Stainers, um, his parents, testified as character witnesses for Carrie. They said he was the perfect son. And that he never gave them problems. But they felt guilty. His mother Kay and his father. Both said on the stand. When Stevie disappeared. We neglected all of our other kids. Carrie the most. And that they felt guilty about sending him to live with his uncle. Who he said had molested him. They begged that he not get the death penalty. His mother said. That if his death would bring all four women back, then she would agree, but it would not. So she did what any mother would do, and she pled for her son's life. But a jury, after five hours of deliberation, did not agree. He was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to death. And he currently sits on death row in San Quentin.
1: Yeah, and he might sit there for a while. I, I mean, think so. I mean, it's 2021. I mean, and nothing still has happened. So you just like, even though... Well,
0: in California, there's like a pause on yeah, that. Yeah,
1: there's a big pause yeah. on that with everything that's going on. Um, But you know what, though? Name me one family that wouldn't neglect the rest of their children after something happening to one of, you know... Like, you know, if one of your children goes missing and, you know you go there's so many emotions that are involved in that name me one family that wouldn't do that
0: i think it's natural for his parents to try and find blame with themselves about this situation because it is so unique and like i feel like they feel guilty i mean any parent would feel guilty if their child committed those crimes
1: 100% so but i you know the, but know, I agree with you. Yeah, it's you know, there's no one that wouldn't feel that way. And then you have to think it's more than just the initial going missing. But imagine now the spotlight and the amount of, um, uh, you know, the amount of like pressure, um, pressure that they're receiving. But then when he comes back, they're giving him all the attention in the world because they've missed him for for so long. For what was it, eight years?
0: Yeah, for eight years.
1: So now. That's another thing. So now, you know, it's more attention to the one kid because he's been gone. So I I think that this family has gotten the worst raw deal that you could ever try to even concoct. Like, it's insane.
0: You have to... In this story, which is so unique, you have to feel so much empathy for and sadness for the family of the victims... Who were so senselessly murdered and savagely murdered. And then also for the family of the Stainers because it's just another thing and, and it's like they must feel cursed.
1: Yeah. I think though that I'm happy with this episode because you have done a great job now putting another, the whole part of this. Because I knew about the whole Steven Stainer thing. But I didn't know about his brother. So this is really good. Usually yeah. at the
0: end of like when there's ever like a documentary about him or like a true crime podcast about Steven Stainer. His brother carries crimes are like a side note. Oh, and then yeah. later his brother went on to be the Yosemite killer.
1: Right. But it's good that we get to see the whole picture now and the whole ordeal that this family has gone has had to go through. Yeah. But also now that all these victims that, you know, now we can talk about, you know. They it's, need to be. Yeah. They need
0: to be discussed because, yes, what happened to Steven Stainer was absolutely horrific and tragic, and it, could, it rips you apart the details of that story and the fact that he was only able to live for another nine years after he was finally able to, to free himself and, and what it must have taken for him to leave to save another boy's life. But you also have to feel equally as as terrible for these, these four women, and what their lives could have been.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, completely ripped from them. You know, they didn't have a chance to ever live their life to the fullest. So yeah. that's that's the worst part about the whole thing.
0: And kids lost their mother. Yeah. Their sister. Wife. Daughters. It's just so sad. Yeah. That was another rough one. That was a big one. That was a big one. I'm glad to like been doing sometimes god guys the research gets to me (laughs) this is another bad one good though thank you well before we go we need to thank our patrons see we can't forget (laughs) um so we do want to thank you guys so much for joining patreon and we hope you are enjoying every single episode and um please know that if you ever need anything you message us on patreon and we'll get back to you asap so we want to thank kayla Sarah Saharan, Mary Beth Kroll, Chelsea Wierski, Mindy Easterwood, Caitlin Oruska, Vivian Garcia, Kathleen McMeneman, Cheryl Hatch, Lorinda Walker, Marion Eggermont, Kim Moreland, Margaret Moore, Annie Larson, Darcy Peralt, Alicia Albrecht, Megan Collins, Clarissa Hernandez, Brittany Meyer upped her pledge, Adrian Tankard, Diana B., Jill Perrin upped her pledge, Lauren Shirley, Sam, Tara Krasinski, Ashley Hoodick, and Misty Trotter. Guys, if I mispronounced any of your names, you let me know so I can redeem myself in the next episode we do well we hope you guys all have a nice two week it might take us two weeks to recover from that case (laughs) (laughs) yeah see everyone later bye guys
1: bye guys